Matthew chapter 19 is where we are. We are continuing this Life in Rhythm series. And today we are talking about the very important rhythm of generosity is what we're talking about today. And some of you are already getting ready to walk out. But don't worry, we have a great, great section of scripture that we're going to look at today. I'm going to pick it up in verse 16. We're going to read our passage and then we'll pray and then we'll, we'll dive into it. This is what we read, Matthew chapter 19, verse 16. It says, just then a man came up to Jesus and asked, teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good, Jesus replied. There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones, he inquired. Jesus replied, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. All these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Then Jesus said to his disciples, truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and they asked, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. And we'll stop right there for right now. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Father, we just thank you uh, for the opportunity to come together uh, again here tonight, God. And uh, we thank you for the opportunity just to study your word and this, uh, this encounter uh, that your son Jesus had with this man in this story, Father. And God, I pray that as we talk about it here today, Lord, I pray that you would, um, you would bring truth and you would bring grace, Father. And you would bring just uh, the right amount of both of those as we unpack uh, what can be a very difficult subject, God, but I also believe, uh, as we put into practice, an extremely rewarding one. And so, God, I just pray that you'd speak through me here tonight, and we give all this over to you and ask this in your son's name. Amen. Well, as I was uh, preparing for this message this past week, um, I was thinking about how sometimes uh, some of you will come up to me after a service, and you will say to me something like, you know, Chris, you, you tend to get the really difficult passages in Scripture. And uh, quite honestly, I, I don't agree with that. I think Matthew and I both get our fair share of difficult passages. But uh, I will admit this week, I have gotten a little bit of a difficult passage in our Bible. In fact, I want to warn you up front here as we go into this message, uh, you may end up leaving here today with a few more questions than you have answers. And that is because that was the case for me as I wrestled over this passage this past week. There were several times when I, I struggled a little bit to understand all that is going on in this particular section of Scripture. And the reason why this passage of Scripture is so difficult, well, one of the reasons why this passage of Scripture is so difficult, is because in this passage of Scripture, we really do get a picture of a Jesus who just confounds our expectations. In this passage of scripture, we get a Jesus who in some ways acts almost the opposite way that many of us have been told that good Christian boys and girls are supposed to act. Now, what do I mean by that? Why do I say that? Well, let me explain. We are today, if you couldn't tell, we are looking at the very famous story, at least for those of you who grew up in the church, we're looking at the very famous story of the rich young ruler. And what is so fascinating to me about the story of the rich young ruler is in the story of the rich young ruler, we, we get one of the unique encounters of Jesus, in Jesus' life. It's an encounter where there's this man who is really sort of the ideal specimen of an individual. He, he comes to Jesus really in the ideal way in this passage. 
And yet this story really ends with a less than ideal conclusion. Okay, we have sort of the ideal specimen of an individual. He comes to Jesus in really the ideal way. But the conclusion to this story is, is really less than ideal. Let me explain what I mean by that. First of all, we, we have in this story the ideal specimen of an individual. The man who comes to Jesus in this particular passage, he is really everything that everybody in this particular society could have aspired to have. And why is that? Well, it's exactly what the story is commonly referred to as. That's the reason. It's because he's rich, it's because he's young, and because he's a ruler. He's rich, he's young, and an authority figure of some sort. First of all, he's rich. We find that out in verse 22. Matthew says there that he has great wealth. And that phrase likely refers to the fact that he was the owner of a lot of land, and land was the primary driver of wealth in this particular time period. So, so he's rich, he has a lot of wealth. Secondly, he's young. You see that in verse 20. Matthew calls him a young man. And the Greek word that Matthew uses for young there is a word that commonly referred to people between the ages of about 21 and 28 or so, which is a very kind of fun, ideal, optimistic sort of stage of life. And so he's young. And then finally, he is a ruler of some sort. Uh, he's an authority figure. We actually don't get this from the book of Matthew. We get this from Luke's account of this story, Luke 18, 18. He calls him a certain ruler. And the word that Luke uses there, it likely refers to the fact that this guy was probably one of the leaders in his local synagogue. He was kind of like one of the, one of the elders of his local church. And if that is indeed the case, that is really amazing because usually leaders of synagogues, uh, the, the only older men had those positions. But this particular individual, he was somehow appointed to that position when he was younger, which means that not only was he young and not only was he rich, but he was also well-respected. He was also probably well-esteemed in this particular society. As I said, he, he sort of had everything that everybody in this society, in fact, when you think about it, he really has everything that everybody in our society today would aspire to. And that's what makes the second thing about this man so amazing. Because when this ideal specimen of an individual, when he approaches Jesus in this story, he doesn't approach Jesus in order to fight with him or spar with him, which is what so many religious leaders did in that day. But this particular individual, he approaches Jesus really in the ideal way. And that's because he asks a great question, and he has a great attitude. He asks a great question. Look with me at the end of verse 16. He comes to Jesus, it says, and this is the question he asks. He says, uh, what, must I, what good thing must I do to get eternal life, he says. He says, teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? And that is an excellent question, right? Because what that question shows is this man is thinking about what really matters in this life. He's thinking about what's really important in this life. Now, I know some of you may get a little bit hung up a little bit on how that uh, question is worded, especially the word do there, and some of you see some self-righteousness in that. Obviously, we don't do anything for salvation. Salvation is, is a gift, but you know what? This man doesn't know that, and if there's anybody who can set him straight, it would have been Jesus, and so I think this is an excellent question. In fact, I, I wish more people today would ask questions like this. And so he asks this ideal great question, and he even seems to have a great attitude, a, a right perspective. Uh, pick it up here in verse 20, after Jesus tells this man that he needs to obey the commandments, practice righteousness in response to his question. This is the man's response, verse 20. He says, all these I have kept. And I will admit, maybe there's some arrogance there, some self-righteousness there, but look at what he says right after that. He says, what do I still lack? He says, what do I still lack? 
And I don't want to read too much into that particular statement, but most scholars I consulted this past week, they saw some degree of humility in that statement. And so this man is admitting, listen, Jesus, I've done everything that I know how to do, and yet I still don't feel like I have eternal life. And so what do I need to do in order to make sure that I'm accepted by God at the end of time and not rejected by him? There, there does seem to be some degree of humility there. At the very least, there seems to be at least an awareness, right? Jesus, I want eternal life. I don't feel like I have it. I know that you know something about it. So Jesus, what do I need to do in order to get eternal life? I mean, what a guy, right? He is the complete package, isn't he? In fact, can you imagine, men and women, can you imagine what most churches would do if a guy like this walked into one of their weekend services? Just so you know, this is the kind of individual that churches sort of love to have be a part of their, their community. Uh, you know, a, a rich, humble, well-respected young guy comes into your church and says, hey, what do I have to do in order to get eternal life? I was listening to Alistair Begg this past week. He made the observation that if this man walked into most churches today, I mean, they would be all over him. They would say to this man, oh, we are so glad you're here and you've asked just the perfect question and we'd love to invite you to the meeting Wednesday at 7 p.m. And by the way, you are the new chair of the finance committee. I hope that's okay with you. And that's only a slight exaggeration. I mean, in many churches today, this guy truly would be on the fast track to be one of the elders of that church. And that's what makes the end of this story so surprising. Because when this sort of ideal specimen of an individual, when he comes to Jesus in the ideal way, what is Jesus' response to him? Again, verse 20, all these I have kept, the young man said, what do I still lack? Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Verse 22, when the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. So when this man comes to Jesus, what does Jesus do? Well, Jesus sort of turns him away. At the very least, Jesus lets him go. Jesus lets him leave. Do you understand how crazy that is? Did you understand how many rules Jesus is breaking in this particular story? When I was in seminary, I had, to, I had to take a class on evangelism as a part of my required curriculum. I had to take a class on how to share my faith. And as a part of that class, we had an assignment where we had to go out and we had to share our faith with someone who didn't know Jesus. And then we had to write about what that experience was like and turn that in. And I was thinking this past week, you know, if, if I acted for that assignment, if I acted like Jesus acted in this particular passage with this man, I probably would have gotten a C or maybe even a D on that assignment. In fact, there's a good chance that the professor would have told me that I needed to, to actually do that assignment over again. Because Jesus sort of breaks all the rules of evangelism in this particular story. There, there are two things especially that stand out to me. First of all, if I acted like Jesus acted in this passage, I know my professor would have called me out for the fact that I let this man leave without any sort of follow-up plan. I mean, he would have written on my paper, you mean you let him go without getting his contact information? You let him go without trying to at least set up a coffee for later in the week? Or you let him go without at least giving him over to one of your disciples and having them follow up with him? I mean, that breaks every rule that you learn in every evangelism course. 
And yet that's exactly what Jesus did here. But the second thing, the bigger thing that my professor would have gotten me for, in fact, I'm not convinced he wouldn't have set up a one-on-one meeting with me to, to, to talk personally about this because he would have probably been so concerned. Because the bigger thing that I think my professor would have gotten me for is he would have said, Chris, you know, I read this account that you had with this man, and here he's asking about eternal life. And Chris, I observe that not once do you ever talk about belief. Not once do you ever talk about faith. Not once do you ever talk about forgiveness of sins. Chris, don't you know that, that, that we believe that the key to eternal life is you have to believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins? You didn't talk about that at all with him. And that, to me, is the greatest omission that we see in this particular story. You know, Jesus knows better than anybody that eternal life is only found by believing in him. John chapter 11, 25, Jesus says this to Mary, Lazarus' sister. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. Why doesn't Jesus say that to this man? Oh, you want eternal life? You've come to the right place. I am eternal life. All you need to do is believe in me and you will have eternal life. There's not even a hint of that in this passage. Not even a suggestion of that. What's Jesus doing here? What's going on here? Well, you'll have to find out next week. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. No, I'm just kidding. No, I think the answer to that question is the key to understanding the story of the rich young ruler. And I actually think the answer to that question is found in what we talked about a couple of weeks ago. I'm going to put a couple of verses on the screen, okay? This is Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 15. You can turn in your Bibles if you want to this passage. Hold your place in Matthew 19 because we'll come back to it. Mark 1, 14 through 15. And here's what you need to understand about this passage. This passage right here in the Gospel of Mark, these, this passage contains the first words of Jesus in the entire Gospel of Mark, Okay? These are the first words that Jesus says in the biography that that Mark writes of Jesus. And this is what it says. It says, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near. Believe the good news. And there you see it, the first words of Jesus in the gospel of Mark. The time has come, the kingdom of God has come near. Believe the good news. Except you know what? That's actually not the first words of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. I've tricked you. And those of you who are following along in your Bibles, you can tell that. It's because I've, I've left out a key word there. And you know what word I left out? The word repent. The word repent. You see, Jesus' first words when he comes on the scene are not the time has come, the kingdom of God has come near, believe the good news. But Jesus' first words are this, the time has come, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news. Repent and believe the good news. And I really believe the key to the story of the rich young ruler, it is found in that word, repent there. And I think in that word, repent there, we find actually one of the the, the most important lessons that the church in our day and age desperately needs to hear. I'm going to say something that's going to shock some of you a little bit. And I know it's going to shock some of you because some of you have never heard this before. But I want to let you know that what I'm going to say is is biblical. It's what Jesus says in Mark 1, 14 and 15. It's what we find in the story of the rich young ruler. And it's what we find all throughout the Bible. And that is this. Did you know, brothers and sisters, did you know that if we want to be saved, that if we want to go to heaven at the end of time, did you know that it's not enough just to believe that there is a God? Did you know that? 
Did you know that if we want to be saved, did you know that if we want to go to heaven at the end of time, did you know it's not enough just to believe that God exists? It's not enough just to believe even that, that Jesus exists. And this is what James, the brother of Jesus, makes clear in James 2.19 when he says this. He says, you believe that there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. And what's the point that James is making here? Well, the point that James is making here is, listen, even the demons believe that God exists. Even the demons believe that Jesus exists. Even the demons know, in fact, that Jesus is the Son of God, but they're not in heaven. Why? Because in the Bible, it's not enough just to believe that there is a God. No, salvation in the Bible is not just believing that there is a God. It's choosing to make our life about that God. Salvation in the Bible is not just believing that Jesus exists, it's it's choosing to follow after Jesus. And the only way that we can follow after Jesus, the only way that we can make our life about God, is if we get rid of everything else in our life that tries to play God. It's if we get rid of everything else in our life that we are trying to follow. And that is what really repentance is. Here's my definition of repentance. I know we talked about a couple of weeks ago, so so add this to what Jay talked about a couple of weeks ago. But here's my definition of repentance. Repentance is saying no to. It's giving up and it's turning from anything that gets in the way of us and God. Anything that tries to play God in our life. That's what repentance is. It's saying no to. It's giving up and it's turning from anything that gets in the way of us and God. You see, repentance, men and women, and this is where I think a lot of Christians are confused. Repentance in the Christian faith is not the same as confession, okay? And that's an important distinction. Because repentance goes deeper than than confession. Confession is what we do with our lips, but repentance is what we do with our heart. When we confess our sins, what we are doing is we are admitting that what we had done is wrong. And that's something that is really good to do. But when we repent of our sins, we go a step further. Not only are we admitting that what we have done is wrong. But we're deciding to turn away from that. We're deciding to leave that behind. That's what repentance is. And according to Jesus, put that verse on the screen again, according to Jesus in Mark 1, 14 through 15, that's the first step to salvation. That's the first step to the kingdom of God. And that is what the man in this story couldn't do. Why does Jesus never get to belief in this story? Why does he never get to forgiveness of sins? Why, as some people have observed before, why does the the gospel message sort of hover all over this passage, but it never seems to intersect it? I think the answer is because Jesus knows that this man won't repent. This man has another God in his life, and he doesn't want to give it up. And what is that God? It's his wealth. It's money. Again, verse 20. All these I have kept, the young man said. What what do I still lack? Verse 21. Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. And next to verse 21 in your Bible, you may want to write the word repent, because I think that's what Jesus is saying here. You see, I think as this man comes to Jesus, Jesus is able to look directly into his heart. And as Jesus looks into this man's heart, he sees no room for God. Why? Because his heart has already been taken by his money, by his wealth, and everything that money can get him. 
And so Jesus says to this man, essentially, hey, you want eternal life, you have to give your heart to God. But you can't give your heart to God right now, because your heart right now is given to your wealth. And so you need to sell all your possessions, you need to give all that away, then your heart will be free, and then you can give your heart to God. But this man can't do that. And so he walks away sad. And that leads me to the first lesson that I want to share with you today. In order to get really concrete in this message, I'm going to share with you in the remaining time I have four lessons that we learned from this passage. And if it helps you, we'll we'll put these on the screen. The first lesson is this. God doesn't want just part of us. He wants all of us. God doesn't want just part of us. He wants all of us. Adding Jesus to our life, brothers and sisters, is not like adding another appointment to our calendar. Following Jesus is not like to be like just taking up another hobby in our life, just something else we add on top of everything else. No, God wants all of us. Jesus wants all of us. Jesus deserves all of us. And in order to have all of us, we have to repent. We have to turn from anything that would get in the way of us and God. For this man, it was his money. It was his wealth. For you and me, it may be something different. You know, several people have rightly observed before that there were some very wealthy people who followed Jesus in his ministry. There are some very wealthy people that we will see in heaven, and Jesus not once asked them to sell all their possessions and give to the poor. And why is that? Well, I think it's because money wasn't a problem for them. Money hadn't grabbed a hold of their heart. And that's an important point. The, the real center of this story, men and women, is not necessarily money. Okay, the real center of this story is that there is a number of different things that can get between us and God, and we need to be able to get rid of anything that gets between us and God. And there's no shortage of things that can do that. There's no shortage of things that can grab a hold of our heart. I really believe in another scenario we could imagine someone coming to Jesus saying, I want eternal life, and Jesus saying, well, then you need to get rid of that relationship you have. You know the one that I'm talking about. It's the one that's taking you further away from me and not closer to me. Or Jesus might say to someone else, well, then you need to get rid of that career goal that is becoming everything in your life. That's becoming the God in your life. Or or you need to get rid of of your desire to be liked by other people, your desire to be accepted by other people, your desire to be famous. I mean, there's so many things that can grab our heart here in this life. And so the issue at the center of the story, it is not necessarily money. At the same time, however, I do need to do justice to this passage, okay? And this kind of leads me to my second lesson. Although there are a number of different things that can grab our hold of our heart, I do want to make it clear that the Bible does sound a very serious warning about money and wealth. Said another way, and this is my second lesson, the Bible makes it clear that money, that wealth, has a unique ability to grab a hold of our heart. Money and wealth, they have a unique ability to grab a hold of our heart. Jesus makes this clear when you continue on. Verse 23, right after this man leaves, it says this. Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, Truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. And do you understand how surprising of a statement that would have been in its time period? In fact, you get a picture of how surprising it is when you look at the disciples' reaction. Verse 25, it says, when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished. You know what that means? 
The disciples did their own <gasps> surprise sound. That's why I'm not having you do it today because the disciples did it for me. I know some of you are waiting for that. But they do it here. It says the disciples go, <gasps> and then after they go, <gasps> they ask Jesus the following question. End of verse 25, it says, who then can be saved? They say, who then can be saved? And isn't that an interesting question? Why do they ask that particular question? Well, the reason they ask it is because in the first century, money was thought to be a very tangible, visible sign of the fact that God was pleased with someone. Okay, money was thought to be a sign of God's favor upon a person. Therefore, if there was anybody on this earth that we could guarantee would be saved, it would have been the wealthy in this particular time period. But that's not what Jesus says here. And that's one of the things that makes this passage so challenging. It was challenging back then, and by the way, it's challenging today, because a lot of people feel the same way about money and wealth today. I was thinking about this this past week, one of the primary words that is thrown out these days in regards to money and wealth. You see it all over Facebook and Instagram. What is the word? It's the word blessed, right? Hashtag blessed. And there is a sense today that money is a sign of, of God's favor and blessing upon a person's life. Well, one of the things that makes this passage so difficult is Jesus almost seems to indicate that the opposite might be true. Again, I was listening to Alistair Begg this past week, and he made the interesting observation that, you know, in this life, money, wealth tends to open a lot of doors for people. But in this passage, Jesus seems to indicate that in the next life, Money actually closes a door, and it's the most important door. It's the door to eternity. That although uh, many people in this life see money as a blessing, that maybe Jesus actually sees it as, as a burden or as a barrier. And why is that? Well, it's because of the second lesson. It's because there are few things that can grab a hold of our heart the way that money can. Because for many people in this life, money is their God. I mean, people treat money the same way that we are called as Christians to treat God. Isn't it interesting, for example, how many people will put their trust in money? You know, when many people go through a difficult circumstance or a, a hardship, their first question is not, how is God going to get me through this, which is what we Christians are supposed to ask, but their first question is, how much money do I have in my bank account? Am I going to be able to weather this storm financially? Isn't it interesting, brothers and sisters, how willing people are to leave everything behind in order to follow money, the same way we Christians are to be willing to leave everything behind in order to follow God? In fact, next to a boyfriend or girlfriend, I can't think any, of anything that people are more willing to uproot their entire lives for than the promise of more money. And isn't it interesting how for some people, the more money they have, the more they begin to act almost as like they're, they're their own God. And they can do whatever they want and get away with it. I'm told, for example, in downtown Los Angeles, where the parking is really tight sometimes, that there are wealthy businessmen and there are hotshot lawyers who will literally break the law every single day. They will park in a no parking zone every single day. Why? Because the price of a ticket for them is nothing. They feel as though they're above the law. And if there's anybody in the society we let get away with that sort of thing, it is really the wealthy and the rich of this world. There are few things that have the ability to, to play God, to grab a hold of our heart more than money and wealth. And so that raises the question, doesn't it? Well, then how do we make sure that doesn't happen? How do we make sure that money hasn't grabbed a hold of our heart? Well, that's the third lesson 
And that is this. By being generous, we show that money doesn't have a hold of our hearts. By being generous, we show that money hasn't become a God in our life. You know, the older I get and and the more I study God's word, the more I have become convinced that according to the Bible, money is not good, money is not bad, but what money is, is it's a test. Money is not good, money is not bad, but what it is, is it's a test. And what I mean by that is this. Listen, there, there are extremely wealthy people on this earth that God is abundantly pleased with. And there are wealthy people on this earth that God is not pleased with. There are extremely poor people on this earth that God is pleased with. And there are extremely poor people on this earth that God is not pleased with. You cannot look at someone's financial condition and tell anything about what God thinks about them. Money is not good, money is not bad. So if that's the case, then what is money? It's a test. It's a test of the condition of our heart. And the way that we show that we've passed this test is by being generous with what God has given us. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 through 19, Paul writes this. He says, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich into good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. And I love that passage because in that passage, Paul doesn't condemn those who are wealthy. And nowhere does the Bible condemn those who are wealthy. And by the way, that's really good news for the vast majority of us in this room. I know that probably many of us don't feel all that rich at times. But just so you know, wealth is relative. And compared to the rest of the world, most all of us, we are very well off compared to the rest of the world. And so nowhere does the Bible condemn wealth. But what the Bible does say is those of us who have a lot in this world, there is a calling upon our life. And that's to be generous. That's to give a portion of what God has given us away to others. That's how we show that money doesn't have a hold of our heart. And as I said at the beginning, that is the the rhythm that we are talking about this week, the, the rhythm of generosity. And I want to let you know, we have some resources online that we put together in order to help develop a life of generosity. If you go to our website, rhythms.friends.church, you're going to see a couple of things. First of all, you'll see some devotionals that go along with this week, and you'll see some ways to help develop this heart of generosity in our lives. But the other thing you'll see is this past week, I filmed a 30-minute video that is all about what the Bible teaches about generosity, why it's important, how to do it, even how much to give, and so on. And if you're in a life group, you'll actually watch that video in your life group. But if you're not, I'd encourage you to go there and watch that. Because it's such an important rhythm for our lives. It's how we show that money doesn't have a hold of our heart. So that's the the third thing. We, We are generous. By being generous, we show that money doesn't have our hearts. And that leads to the fourth thing, which is this. What we give up is nothing compared to what we get. What we give up is nothing compared to what we get. Look at me at verse 26. Jesus looked at them, it said, his disciples. And he said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And that uh, verse right there, that's in response to the disciples asking, who can be saved? And I I do want to say a word about verse 26 there, because that's a very important verse. And really what that verse is, is it's a ray of sunshine in an otherwise very bleak passage. 
You see, if we didn't have verse 26 in our Bible, based on what Jesus says in verses 24 and 25, we may get the impression that there's going to be no wealthy individuals in eternity. And again, since wealth is relative for the vast majority of us in this room, that is very scary news. But what Jesus does in verse 26 is he reminds us that ultimately salvation is up to God. It's not up to us. And God can save whoever he wants. And if you're sensing a little bit of tension there between God's hand and salvation and our response to it, between repentance and the free gift of grace and salvation, as I said, this passage does raise some questions, perhaps more than answers. But I do know verse 26 is a very important verse. But continue on, verse 27, Peter answered Jesus, we have left everything to follow you. <laughs> what then will there be for us? Don't you love that question? Such a human question. What's in it for us, Jesus? Here's Jesus' response, verse 28. Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, and here he's talking about his disciples, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And now he talks about us, verse 29, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sister or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. And what is Jesus saying there? He's saying exactly what this last lesson is. Yes, there is sacrifice involved in the Christian faith. But what we, we get is, is, give up is nothing compared to what we get. And that leads me to this video that I want to share with you right now. A couple weeks ago, Pastor Matthew interviewed a, a woman at our church who a few years ago took seriously this call of generosity. And as you'll see in this video, uh, she didn't have a lot, um, but the way that she decided to be generous is by this concept of the tithe, and actually ta talk about the tithe in this video I filmed this past week, but the tithe is this commitment to give away 10% of your income. And, and in this video, you're going to see what, what this uh, commitment to generosity, what it did for her. So turn your eyes to the screen. Summer, it is so good to have you here. Thanks for joining me today. And I would love for you to tell us uh, about yourself and who you are. And really, how do you got to this place right now at Friends Church? My son kind of brought me to this church, but my son had, you know, heard God and his Holy Spirit. And someone invited us here, and ever since, I've I've been coming every Sunday. Oh, the second service that I came, I do remember it was you. Yeah. Um, and you had actually told me about tithing. And I'd never know. I grew up in a, you know, non-church household. Didn't know what tithing was. And I said, okay, great. So I've been tithing ever since. And it has completely changed my life. Now, let me just ask. You started tithing. It wasn't that you were making just lots and lots of money. No. You no. had just moved out of your parents' house, right? Yeah. So now you're on your own. Mm -hmm. you tithing was hard. Yeah, so tithing was a stretch. Yes. But you heard God kind of speak through the Holy Spirit, mm -hmm. so you began to give. Well, during my hard times, yeah. I did my 10%, yeah. and I said, okay, I'll do this. You know, yeah. explain to my son what was going on. And he was with you on it? And he was with me That's on so it. Great. So, yeah. Yes. And ever since, yeah, it's, it's completely changed my life. God has done great things. Wow. Yes. Uh, so, Summer, uh, I want you to just kind of share a little bit about those those hard times. Uh, I, I, I kind of to know you and understand where you were at. What, what went on as as you got into the youth centers? Why did why did you go there? And what were some of those hard times you were walking through? Let's see. I hated my life. You Absolutely did. could not stand it. I yeah. didn't understand why I was here. <laughs> I thought it was just to pay bills every month. Yeah. Um, and then you know I I I was 
came into like drug addiction yeah. and um, a lot of things that I regret. Right. Um, if I had to explain to Sam too as well the reasons of why we can't, you know, purchase certain things, you know. Mm -hmm. um, sorry. I'm about to cry. Yeah, that's okay too. <laughs> to know where I came from is yeah. it's like hard to share that. Yeah. You know, like of how much he's done. Yeah. <laughs> wow, I didn't think I was gonna cry. <laughs> so good. You not only began to tithe, you went above and beyond. Because you found out that we were uh, giving to the youth centers of Orange. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of a, a, a thing we were supporting, not only at this church, but our Orange Campus was doing it. So tell us a little bit why you started giving to them and why that was so important to you. Well, during my hard times, um, I had to find a daycare, Youth Centers of Orange, um, and they took Sam, you know, after school program, during yeah. the summertime and, and whatnot. And they went above and beyond for me, and they were very generous with me at the time that I needed. I wanted to return that favor to YCO. And, and yes. kind of how did that affect your son? Because he had a big part in this as well, didn't he? Yes, he wanted to, to you know, give back to them as well. Yeah. Didn't your son give $500? My son gave 500 That's a lot of money. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's then you matched him. Mm -hmm. And so the Youth Centers of Orange got $1,000 on top of what you were already given. Yes, on top of what we were, we were already giving. It's yes. amazing. Well, Summer, um, I want to say thanks for being a part of our story today and helping others to be generous and to not so sparingly and hold on but to understand everything is God's and when we give it back to him he gives to us so thank you for being a part and thank you for letting me have a few minutes of your time thank you you better isn't that a great story and it's like yeah <laughs> one person thought it was a good story we were actually taking bets before the service on whether or not you'd clap after that and I lost so no we weren't I'm just kidding uh, as I was watching that story, and actually as I was studying this, this passage here, I was reminded of the famous quote by Jim Elliott. And Jim Elliott, very famously a missionary who lost his life actually uh, trying to, to bring others to Jesus, he gave the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate act of generosity. He said this, he said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot earn. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot earn. You know, the man in the story here, uh, because he kept on to, to his money, he lived a very comfortable life here on this earth. Absolutely he did. But what did this man give up in return? He gave up his soul. He gave up eternity. How tragic is that, right? And that's why, honestly, every once in a while as Christians, it's really good to examine our hearts and to see, is, it, is there anything I'm holding on to? Is there anything that's grabbing a hold of my heart that, that I need to let go and I need to give to God? And since this passage and since the rest of the Bible does sound a, a very serious warning about money and finances and that sort of thing, I think that's actually a really good place to start in examining ourselves. And that's what leads me. You got a piece of paper when you came in, right? Would you go ahead and pull this piece of paper out right now? If you didn't, you can raise your hand and one of our ushers will bring it to you. But on this piece of paper, I have a little activity, a little assignment for you uh, right now and then it's going to continue into the week. But here's what I want you to do. First on this piece of paper, I want you to write the name of an individual, either an individual in your life that you know is maybe going through a little bit of a difficult time. Or I want you to write the name of maybe an organization, you heard one in that video, an organization that you know is doing some really good work, some of God's work in this world. That's the first thing I want you to do. Write a name either of an individual who you know is maybe going through some sort of tough time. 
or an organization that you know is doing a lot of good, maybe an organization that has personally impacted you. That's the first thing. And then once you have done that, what I want you to do is underneath that, I want you to write one tangible way this week that you can be generous to them. One tangible way this week you can show generosity to whoever it is or whatever it is you wrote at the top. Now, since we're talking about money here today, I, I do think a great way to show generosity to especially people struggling or organizations is, is to be able to be generous and give some of our resources away. But I understand some of you are not in a position you can do that. So maybe it's a way you can be generous with your time. Maybe it's a way that you can be generous with your resources in other ways. Maybe it's a way that you can be generous with your, your words and send them a nice email or a phone call or a text message or something like that. But I want you to write here some way that you can be generous to that particular person or that particular organization. And I'll give you a second to do that. Here's what I want you to do with this paper this week, okay? I want you to take this paper and I want you to fold it up and I want you to put it in your pocket or I want you to put it in your purse or I want you to put it in your wallet or I want you to put it on your nightstand or something like that, your bathroom mirror, someplace that you're gonna see it regularly. And what I want you to do is I, I want you to keep this piece of paper there until you fulfill the commitment that you've written here as a reminder of the pledge that you've made. And I want you to hold on to it and keep it until the, you have done that. And then when you have done that, then you can get rid of this, then you can throw it away. But what I'd encourage you to do at that point is to get another piece of paper and do the same exercise over again. And to always have one of these just around as, as something you're working towards in an area of being generous. And it's a great way to just remind ourselves and to develop this rhythm of generosity in our lives. And so I'd encourage you to do that. And I think that you will find that, that what you give up is nothing compared to what you get in return. So I want you to take and encourage you to take that particular challenge this week. But as we close here today and head into uh, our final song here, I'd, I'd love it if, if you could stand with me as we head into a word of prayer. Let's pray together. Father God, um, you want our hearts, Lord. And there's so many things in this life, God, that um, try to steal our hearts, try to take it, that we are tempted to give our hearts and our lives to, Father. And God, ultimately, all those other things that we give it to, God, um, th those are things, Lord, that uh, they stay on this earth. There is only one thing that we can give our heart to, God, that, 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 that will bring it into eternity, and that is you. That is your son, Jesus, Father. And so, God, I, I pray over Friends Church right now, Lord. I pray that, that you would help us identify anything in our life, anything that is keeping us from just being fully committed and fully devoted to you, God. And as we recognize those things in our life, Father, I, I pray that you would help us to uh, release those to you. And to God, to be generous, to give away what you have given us, because that's how we show, Lord, that you are the one who is in control and not any of this other stuff that we have, Father. 
And God, I pray that every single day we would just have this posture that just says, Lord, I'm, I'm yours. Anything, everything, whatever, Father, you want, I want to give to you because, God, I realize that you are the source of eternal life, Lord. And God, as we do that, I pray that you would just show your favor, your blessing. I pray that you would show just how pleased you are with us as we take those acts of, uh, steps of faith towards you. And so, Father, we declare right here, right now, God, you can have it all. You can have everything in our life, Lord. It's yours already. And so, God, we, we give it right now to you. And God, as we close out this time here with this final song, Lord, I pray that it would be just an offering of, of praise and thanksgiving to you for who you are and for what you've done for us. We love you, Father. We thank you. And we ask all this in your son's name. Amen.